Good morning, and we are in Luke again. We're in the second chapter, but uh, actually we're going to kind of bridge it here a little bit this morning. In this message, we want to look back briefly at the uh, first chapter in order to note some important truths there as they relate here to what we will see in the opening chapter, or the opening verses of chapter 2. And we'll touch upon the birth of Christ and the angelic announcement, and I say just touch upon it because I plan to uh, preach on that even more uh, next week. Uh, These shepherds, as they were gathered in the Judean hills, Luke has a long introduction to the life of Jesus and detailing events preceding the incarnation with observations unique to his gospel. You find it no no place else in Scripture. For example, only Luke compares the announcements of the births of these two sons, John and Jesus, and their backgrounds and the similarities there of their of both of their of their introductions. And these two men are going to introduce the gospel age. This is a new thing. And only Luke informs us that God sent his archangel Gabriel, whom we read about there in the book of Daniel, uh, he appears there and nowhere else in scripture, and then suddenly uh, Luke has him uh, there coming to Zacharias in the temple as Zacharias served in his priestly function there before the altar of incense. And then later, the same angel appears to Mary in uh, the little town of Nazareth to announce to her that she is going to give birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. Just Gabriel. Luke is the only one who shows us here the reactions to this announcement. Zacharias met the revelation here with disbelief, questioning the possibility of its fulfillment. He showed the same disbelief that the uh, that characterized the priests of Malachi's day that brought on the four hundred silent years. Zacharias, however, was one of the Lord's elect remnant, and therefore he's treated differently. He was, we know this because the scriptures tell us he was righteous before the Lord, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. We see that in chapter 1, verse 6. Therefore, Zechariah's doubt was met not with wrath, but with disciplinary mercy, which now then enabled him to bless the Lord God of Israel in verse number 68. Mary, on the other hand, received her announcement with wonder and faith. And that's revealed in her complete submission to the will of God, which is recorded there in verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary's question was not disbelief, but a question at, uh, for information about the means of its fulfillment. For Mary understood here 
that uh, there, the problem, the issue here, her being uh, a virgin, she was betrothed to in marriage contract to Joseph, but that marriage had not yet been consummated. Luke alone gives us the fact that Mary was related to Elizabeth, which makes both John and Jesus distant cousins. Luke then also reveals the wonder and amazement of the people who witnessed the births of these two sons, the principal characters in God's plan of salvation. Of John, Luke wrote, fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard, <coughs> excuse me, all who heard them, laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. That's chapter 1, verses 65 and 66. Of Jesus, Luke wrote, And all who heard it wondered <coughs> at what the shepherds had told them. That's in chapter 2, verse 18. This introductory material then proves that God after 400 years, was fulfilling Malachi's promise that God's messenger would now prepare the way for the Messiah, the Christ. That's chapter in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. And then we read, The Lord whom you seek shall or will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts, and Luke shows us that he came. This pat the pattern here, uh, like that described in Jeremiah of the judgment of, of Judah in exile to Babylon. And so we read there in Jeremiah chapter twenty eight, verses ten and eleven, thus says the Lord, when seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will visit you, see? And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you. So let's get into it here, and I want to uh, look note first here in the message, God's visit. As Jeremiah said, I will visit you. So we read in Luke that this was the time of God's visitation and Luke's opening of his gospel reveals some other great truths. The prophesied work of the two chosen sons are compared. Uh, the work of John, what was the work of John? It was to prepare a people for the Lord or a prepared people for the Lord. He was to prepare those prepared people. And two ways. One that says he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, that is the Lord, in the power and spirit, uh, spirit and power of Elijah to do two things. One, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, that's repentance. And B, 
the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. That's conversion. For this purpose, we read in verse 17, to make ready a people prepared. God prepares his people before he acts. Is he preparing us now for the second coming? Is he putting a yearning in our hearts to see him break through the clouds? For every eye shall see him. To welcome him. To be taken to him. To meet him in the air. To be with him forever. Ah. The Lord prepares his people. For what he's about to do. And this is exactly what. Uh, we find John doing. John was sent from God to the remnant, his elect remnant in the land of Judah to prepare them for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The work of Jesus, on the other hand, the Lord and Savior was to rule over his prepared people. And this is interesting. It doesn't talk here about his going to the cross. It says nothing about his blood washing away their sins. It says nothing about their need to be rescued out, out of sin by a sacrifice. But it talks about his ruling over them. And so we read there in, in uh, Luke... He will be great. And I think this is a likely availed reference to Isaiah 9.6. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Which then, which enumerates this greatness. And then we read he will be called the Son of the Most High. Here's a reference to his miraculous conception, maintaining his divinity. The Lord said to me, you are my son this day. I have begotten you there in Psalm 2. And it's fulfilled according, then according to Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. A virgin shall conceive. This is humanly not possible. Virgins don't get pregnant. But Mary did. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You know what Emmanuel means? It means God with us. Here is a child born who is divinity living in our midst. Wow. And the Lord, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. That's the ultimate plan. The cross is the means to that plan. We often focus on the cross and, we, and well, we should rejoice in it and occupy our minds with it and meditate upon it that 
God was willing to give His own Son to rescue us from our sinfulness. But the, it's not just to rescue us from our sinfulness. It's to prepare a people. A prepared people. For what? To be ruled over by this glorious Jesus Christ who has conquered death, risen from the grave, seated at the right hand of majesty, of the majesty on high. So we read here that the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And I think that speaks of his human heritage through Mary and Joseph being related to David. His being the son of man to whom uh, was given dominion and glory, a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That was God's original purpose for Adam and Eve in the garden. Now it's being fulfilled in the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. So here is divinity dwelling among us who is also humanity. That's the miracle of miracles. And so we read there in Luke, he will reign over the house of Jacob. And I think the house of Jacob is a veiled reference to that prepared people, to the people prepared forever. Jacob, yeah, there's a significance even to that name, Jacob. For Jacob was what is human name there before God changed it to Israel. But Jacob, the house of Jacob, that, that's our sinful condition. That's our walking in the flesh. Longing, looking forward to the time when because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of the spirit of the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that sets us free from the law of sin and death, that one of these days we will be forever free from the debilitating effects of sin in our lives. Therefore, we will be able to, to worship and serve this King of Kings forever without any pain or suffering or sorrow or any of the, of the consequences of that debilitating sin. His kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. See, Luke, again, Luke does not inform the reader of Christ's death and resurrection, but solely of his rule and reign in the kingdom of God. That's his, his focus is the kingdom of God. This messianic rule announced at his birth, however, uh, could not commence until his elevation to the Father's right hand. And this truth is hinted at also here with, with Jesus' presentation of the temple. I'm jumping ahead a little bit. I'll cover this next week. But uh, eight days he's circumcised and then he's presented in the temple after a little period again of, a, of cleansing. 
and we we read this truth then is hinted at there when Simeon prophesied behold this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel what he means here is there's going to be a separating the believing remnant from the disbelieving nation the fall on one, of one and the rising of many others in Israel. And then he said, for a sign that is opposed. Sign here describes the, determine, the determined enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ who will put him to death on the cross. A sign opposed. And it describes here the determined enemies of the Lord. And then we read, And a sword will pierce through your, Mary's, own soul also. And that's, there's a threefold reference here to the grief, her grief that was to come. Let me just explain that. Here. Uh, Mary was rebuked by Jesus. In the first instance, Mary was rebuked by Jesus in the temple when he was 12 years old when she came to question his treatment of them, his parents, causing them undue concern. They had left and couldn't find him, so they went back to the temple and found him sitting among the, the uh, elders there and Asking questions and learning and, and uh, being uh, showing here that he, who he was. And so Jesus responded to her, Do you not know that I must be about my father's business? In other words, his, that's his true and ultimate father. Luke chapter 2 verse 49. And by this, Jesus informed her that his relationship with the Heavenly Father took precedence over his relationship to her as his earthly mother. The second time her soul was pierced was when she and, and uh, his brothers, we don't know, I think Joseph was probably passed by that time, but they came to find Jesus because they wanted to talk to him. And that's inferring here that they, because she was his mother and that was his family, should have precedence over his time. On that occasion, which is found in Matthew chapter 12, verse 48, he replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he, with his hand he indicated those disciples sitting before him in his teaching. By this Jesus declared that his mother was not more important to him nor his brothers more important to him than were his disciples. He would not interrupt his teaching to have his family speak with him. They would have to wait. But the third occasion is when Mary was seated at the cross, grieving 
over his premature death by execution. And Jesus looked compassionately upon her and said, Woman, behold your son. In John chapter 19, verse 26, in this, Jesus would have her to understand that his death on the cross held a far greater significance than what appeared on the surface. He was being executed. But there was a grander plan that was being carried out by God, predetermined in ages past, carried out with wicked hands, but to bring about a glorious product. Woman, behold your son. The word behold there has, is just pregnant with significance. He's telling her, look carefully at me. Understand what's going on here. I'm not just dying. And I'm going to live again. And not only this, I'm dying as your substitute under the wrath of God. I'm paying for your sins right now in my suffering. I am redeeming you forever to God. Woman, behold your son. So when did we read there that many that the thoughts of many hearts might be revealed? Simeon says that the thoughts of many hearts might be revealed. Yeah, Jesus Christ's coming has that significance. He's going to reveal Mary's heart. Has he revealed your heart? Do you belong to him? Has he showed you? What he's all about. And why you need to care about that more than you need to care about anything else in life. That brings us then to the two pra- and the, the praises of these two chosen servants, Mary and Zechariah. And comparing them, Mary psalmed her Lord. She, this was a song, a psalm. And by this, her soul was magnifying the Lord and her spirit was rejoicing in her Savior. She saw that God's choice of her magnified the power in contrast to her humble estate. And we see this frequently in, involved here in, in, a, in a number of ways. Mary was chosen from a low estate, a very low estate. But now he is elevating her with the strength of his arm. As the Lord had informed Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength or my power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. And here, as we've pointed out, it, it, this psalm is patterned after Hannah's song there in 1 Samuel chapter 2. a woman who was also put down and despised who was thought little of Mary recognized and praised God that he had chosen 
her to have a part in his continuing gracious work on the behalf of his people. She focused. And that's what I think was what she means by said, from now on, all will call me blessed. Not that she is important, but that God had taken, lifted her and used her in this way. So then she focuses upon God's work for those who recognize their need for his merciful provision as promised to Abraham and to his offspring. In that song. On the other hand, Zechariah prophesied that his Lord visited and redeemed his people by what? Raising a horn of salvation. Horn is a reference to the power of God, but it's used in the sense of battle. The horn in the battle, uh, the trumpet charge, and so forth. So there is a great significance of that here. This is in verses 68 and 69. Luke reports that when Jesus raised the son of, uh, the only son of the widow of Nain, here's a woman who's a widow and she's utterly dependent upon this only son and now he's passed away, which, put, which really leaves her nothing. And when Jesus saw this funeral procession passing by, he had great compassion upon this woman. And walked over and touched the beer containing the body of this only son and said, get up. And life came back into that lifeless body and he was returned to mother. Wow. Can you imagine the, re the reaction of the people who were in that funeral procession that witnessed this? They knew the boy was dead. They grieved with the widow. Now they see him alive with his mother. And so Luke records, and this is found in Luke chapter 7, verses 16 and 17, that fear seized them. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, A great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited His people. Oh, for a visitation from God. We need a visitation from God. We need one now. And this report about Him spread throughout the whole of Judah, Judea and the surrounding country. As noted last week, this, this prophecy has two parts. The Lord visited His people there in verses 68 and 60 uh, through 75. And secondly, John, uh, uh, a word about John the Baptist fulfilling the word spoken by Malachi to be the Elijah-like figure preparing the way for the Messiah, giving knowledge of salvation to his people and providing the light 
of truth to the Gentiles who were sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death and guiding all their feet in the way of peace. That brings me to the second thing, and that's the birth of Jesus and the announcement to the shepherds. All of this previous prepares us for this. And so the second chapter is open. By the way, uh, there were no chapter divisions in the, in the original manuscript. So this is a continuing introduction. Chapter 1 is very long. Chapter 2 goes right on into chapter 2 now. And this brings us to the birth of Jesus. And I want you to notice something. The birth, John, uh, or, uh, Luke here records the birth of John the Baptist. And he takes nine verses to do so. When he introduces the birth of Christ, he takes seven verses to do so. But here's the interesting thing. The first five verses have nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. Of the seven, only two verses even have anything to do with the birth of Jesus. The first verses, the first five verses, simply explain here... uh, why he was born in Bethlehem of Judea and not in Nazareth of Galilee. So first I want you to notice here that Luke ignores the prophecy of Micah 5.2. He alludes to it, very clearly alludes to it, but he ignores it, does not mention it at all, which Matthew does include and in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, when the wise men inquired as to where this king was to be born, the, the Jewish scholars in Jerusalem understood explicitly and said that it would be Bethlehem of Judea, quoting from Micah 5, 2. However, here's, here's the difference. Luke explains why Jesus was born in Bethlehem which Matthew omits. Matthew says nothing about the circumstances of, it, of Joseph's going to Bethlehem. And here's the situation. Joseph, being of the lineage of David, was required to appear in his ancestral home in order to be registered for the purpose of Roman taxation. Now here's a, here's a fact that we don't Uh, normally here this was only required of those who actually owned property in that community Joseph apparently had some property there which required him to go personally for the registration Luke gives us a reference which enables us to date the birth of Christ. He tells us that Caesar Augustus here was involved in these uh, in this registration. Augustus, we know about four or five that he uh, instituted. But we also find here that it, that uh, the, it's stated, that it had to be around 6 B.C. because he states here Quirinius being was governing there in Syria. Now that's a little bit of a problem. We know that Quirinius 
was governor in Syria between A.D. 6 and 9. So it couldn't be 6 B.C. So did Luke make a mistake? Do we have here a flaw in our Bibles? No. There's, there's actually two, two explanations. One is that the word when in our English Bibles, when Quirinius was governor in Syria, uh, is not there. It's not in the Greek. It, the Greek simply reads Quirinius governing in Syria. Quirinius governing in Syria. In fact, even the word there uh, it is, does not mean that he was governor. It's not a noun. He was governing in Syria. So some have taken this uh, to to read to read, and you could construct it this way or understand it this way in the Greek that uh, Caesar Augustus had this registration before Quirinius was governor in Syria, although. It's not governor. It's governing. Before he was governing in Syria. And uh, uh, Linsky in his uh, commentary. I think gives us the best. The best explanation. The governor of Syria. At, in 6 BC. Was a, was a man by the name of Varius. He governed until Quirinius became the governor. But Quirinius was governing under Varius. He was acting as an official in his government in Syria. And they were the ones responsible for the registration and taxation that was to go on in Judea. So that, that, that exonerates Luke completely. And, and it gives us a clear reference here that this fellow Quirinius was actually administering the registration that was required by Augustus Caesar there in 6 B.C. Now, how does this fit to the date? Here, here's, here's an important truth. Jesus was born, had to be born between 6 and 4 B.C. And the reason is because Herod died in 4 B.C. And Jesus was alive at that time. So he couldn't have been born in 6 A.D. He had to be born in around 6 to 4 B.C. Because Herod died. And Jesus was living when Herod died. So the decree went out in 6 B.C. And we also know that when the, the decree goes out, it takes a while. In those days, you can't travel very fast. At least two years elapsed. And I think there's another thing. When the wise men came to find whose star they saw in the east, came to a house, and there the young child Jesus is mentioned. Not the, He's not an infant anymore. He's two years of age. Born in 6 B.C., they probably came around 4 B.C. So that, that tells us 
gives us some idea. And, and they say, well, what about December 25th? I'll show you that in a second. Let's here, come back to this. There was another problem here, or another, uh, another thing, question here that arises, because Luke informs us they laid him, the infant Jesus, in a manger, which is a feed bunk. Clearly, in the Greek, it's a feed bunk for animals. And it tells us they, they did so because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, there's a specific Greek word for a hotel. And this is not the word. This Greek word is katalema, which was a roadside lodging in which travelers then could spend the night because of the distance and arriving late and the accommodation already full, Mary and Joseph likely stayed in the lower room of a house where the livestock were kept. And they laid his infant body in the feed trough. There is ancient tradition, however, which, that tells us that they occupied a cave or a grotto, which may be the case. I'll let you decide. So let's return here to Micah 5.2. Now, Luke does not quote it, but he definitely, clearly alludes to it. But I want us to return there, here for a reason, because... I was just blown away in reading Micah 5. I'm, I'm, I want to read it to you here. And beginning with verse number 2. Micah 5 beginning with verse 2. And I want to read down through the first sentence in verse number 5. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. In other words, this has been long predicted. Therefore, he shall give them up, God, a reference here to God, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. I... I really believe that was a reference there that Zechariah used. He shall be great. And he shall be, he shall be their peace. Not he shall give them peace. Not he shall secure their peace. He shall be their peace. Let's look at that for a second. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrata, and, and notice you who are least among the clans of Judah. Here we have it again. God chooses the weak. Very informative. He uses those that are rejected, the outcast, the lowly. But notice here it says, from you shall come forth 
for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And I think here a likely reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 13, about the ancient of days. And it is very instructive to read the whole prophecy, as, we've, as, I, as I just mentioned here, because it tells us more about Jesus' place, more than simply his place of birth. Notice it says, Therefore he shall give them up until the time. God. What did God do? In the old, under the old covenant, he found them hard-hearted and disbelieving, and he gave them up. For 400 years, he said nothing, no prophet, no word from God. He's going to give them up. Therefore, he shall give them up. Until when? When she, Mary, who is in labor, has given birth. Jesus. Then the rest of his brothers shall return. That is the righteous remnant. And what will the righteous remnant do? It says of the people of Israel. And I think here, again, we need to understand this as the Israel of God, which is now the church. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. That's what he's doing now. Shepherding his flock. He is the good shepherd. According to John chapter 10. And he does so in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And he shall dwell, and they shall dwell secure. Ah, we have nothing to fear. We dwell secure. He watches over us. He's our great high tower. We shelter under the shadow of his wings. We have nothing to fear. They shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. See, that is the universal nature of the gospel. Not just over one little land there in the Middle East, but over the whole world. And he shall be their peace. And again, a reference here to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which reads, he will be called the Prince of Peace. And then he shall speak peace to the nations. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 10. And Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one. Torn down this middle wall of partition. Dividing us. This middle wall of. This dividing wall of hostility. And that takes us to the shepherds. And here I'm going to be very brief because I'm saving most of this for next week. Luke tells us that the shepherds were in the field keeping watch over their sheep. The sheep in their care. Probably sheep owned by the priests. And these shepherds were taking care of it. These sheep would be used in the daily sacrifices in the temple. And this, this is where we find out that the normal date for Christ's death could not, be, could not uh, possibly be December the 25th. And here's why. It's too late in the year. These shepherds shepherded from April to September or early October. Only. 
So this is telling us exactly what time of the year they're they're there. So from he was born then in six AD, I mean six BC, probably sometime between April or September, and I think it was either it was probably September. These and again these the angel appears to shepherds. The first announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ to anyone was done to these shepherds. Now let me let me set that for you. These were lowly people, not not the religious elite, not the rich and the powerful in Jerusalem. They were shepherds. For the shepherds were regarded as the lowest order of society. Their duty made them perpetually unclean. They could never go to temple services. They could never observe the religious festivals because they were shepherds. I, I wonder if that's why Jesse looks down upon David when they were, all of his sons were called to the feast there that Samuel gave. And after the Lord rejected them all, he said, Is there, do you have any other sons? Well, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, <laughs> there's the shepherd. He's off by himself, out all alone. He can't, he's unclean, perpetually unclean. He can't be part of any of our religious festivities. Ah, but the angel of the Lord suddenly comes to these in shining glory. I, I, I was just sitting back thinking about that. Can you imagine what that was like? Here they are just, it's at night and they're probably half sleeping. <laughs> Some of them uh, were awake. Maybe they're talking, sit, uh, sitting around the fire. Maybe looking at the stars up there above. Suddenly, Here's this angel appearing in the sky and brilliant light shining all around them. And the scripture describes them as filled with great fear. The word, or the King James has it, sore afraid, sore afraid. That's painful. <laughs> it's sore. It's painfully afraid. But the, the Greek word there is mega. Mega means huge. Mega. Fear, phobia, megaphobia. They were terrified with megaphobia, terrible terror. And I imagine it, it caused them to fall upon the ground and cover their heads and, and uh, cringe in and, and, and deep fear. But the angel said to them, and this is an angel from, of the Lord who said to them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. This is the same thing that he said that the angel has said to every one of the main characters in this story. Said it to Zechariah. Don't be afraid. Said it to Mary. Don't be afraid. Says it now to these angels. I mean to these shepherds. Don't be afraid. And I think tell, tells us that God-fearing people should never be afraid. They, are, they fear God, so they should never be afraid, uh, fearful of anything else. And the exhortation to God's people 
over and over again is fear not. So as they lay prostrate, paralyzed and trembling, the angel gave them great news. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news, gospel news of great joy. This, the, here we have two Greek words, mega, kara, kara, mega kara, great joy. So over against megaphobia is mega kara, great joy. And why? For unto you, and I think that that's, there's an implication here too, that these were God-fearing men who were anticipating the Messiah. So I have news for you. You've been looking for this. It's here. It's here. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior for the deliverance of sin and, from sin and death who is Christ. The King, giving us kingdom hope. Saving hope, kingdom hope. And then the Lord for giving us the power to live in obedience to God. A Savior who is Christ, the Lord. The Greek word here used for good news, as I point, uh, pointed out here, is euangelion, which is the word uh, that Luke uses commonly in his gospel to refer to the gospel of salvation. So this announcement then was met, then was accompanied here with a chorus of angelic voices giving glory to God and praising Him that peace had come to the earth, just as Micah had announced, and he shall be their peace. In other words, Jesus doesn't just make peace, he is our peace. Is he your peace? More about this next week. But in closing, please note that the shepherd's response to this angelic announcement was to do, was action. They sought him out. You shall find the babe. They sought him out. And after finding him, they were eager to make him known. So we read there in verse 17, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. They witnessed the gospel to anyone who would listen. And that's what we're to do ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to consider these truths. Lord, wow. The Word of God is just so full. There's just so many glorious nuggets, so many bright gems. But Lord, it, that does no good unless those truths are incorporated into our living. And we walk out of this place changed because the Word of God has a transformative effect. We want to be more godly we want to live more Christ-like. We want to serve more obediently. And we praise you for our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. Amen.